Hi, I'm Lori. And I'm Andrea. We're excited to welcome you to the We Should Probably Talk About That podcast. We are so happy to have you here with us, and we can't wait to make it awkward. Hey, everybody. I just hit record, and Andrea's laughing right now. Because <laughs> I'm funny. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Hi. Hi. Andrea's laughing because we were wondering if we were going to do a recap or not. And she was like, yes, yes, we are. I have lots to say and it's funny. No, I didn't. <laughs> no, I said the only exciting thing we did this week is that one of my friends threw a late birthday party for me and another friend and we went to a dueling piano bar and I was like, there's something about a man in his instrument <laughs> who knows how to play his own instrument wait what i wasn't trying to be whatever andrea was flirting with one of them he was 31 yeah but he liked your favorite song and you guys had a bonding moment we had a moment you did he looked at you and said this is my favorite song and you said mine too and we just gazed at each other <laughs> and it took me clear to the chorus to figure out what song it was <laughs> You gazed into each other's eyes longingly. <laughs> he looked 12, but he was 31. He did. And he said he was an alcoholic, so that's two strikes against him. He did? Yeah. You didn't hear him say that? No. Yeah, he cracked a joke and then said, well, I'm also an alcoholic. So, and and yeah, I was like, oh, and okay then. Was he, is he an active alcoholic or I a did, recovery? Did you see me go up and ask him? You should. I if I would have no. known, I would have immediately said that. You'd have given him our card and said, listen to my podcast. Well, no, I, I, <laughs> we don't have cards, first of all. <laughs> Oh anyway, gosh. anyways, piano, like a man who can oh, play the piano. I agree. Like marry me yeah. right now. Men and women out there, if you have kids, boys especially, who are, are learning to play the piano and giving you crap, just tell them it'll pay off in the long run. Yeah. My youngest started piano lessons a month ago. She She's just good at everything. That's awesome. She's just picking it up so fast. And I would love to know how to play the piano for yeah. sure. That's a skill that, just to sit down and be able to play any song you want. And that's how it was. That, yeah. That, it, it was crazy. Tabernacle. It was. It was like the They could literally yep. like look up a song and like just kind of listen on YouTube or whatever and like look at the lyrics and be like, yeah, I can probably play this. Yeah. And then they would just play it. Yeah. It's magic. It's very cool. Uh, I, I want to, the Tabernacle, I, I want to play off that. Uh for those of you that are outside of Utah, don't understand, we have a Mormon building called the Tabernacle and the Tabernacle Choir, right? Mm-hmm. So this tavern, like a beer drinking place, Tabernacle, is a pretty fun place to go. All us heathens hang out there. <laughs> yeah. I used to, back yep. in the day when they had a cover charge, Yeah, I, I was probably in my early 20s. I had a membership to the Tabernacle. Yeah, that's a whole Utah thing that was a mess. You had to have a membership anywhere that was a bar. Was yeah. it like an annual fee? How did that work? Yeah, it was because che- I, I mean, it used to be like a $5 cover, and then for a year membership, I think it was like 25 bucks. That's a crock. Why? Like, Why? I just think it's a way for the state to have made money on people that go to bars, personally. it's it's because There are no longer membership-driven um, bars here. But there are places that have cover charge. Like the Cl- yes. Club 90 has a cover yes. charge. Cover like. is fine. I, I get that. I totally understand that. But the membership fee? Well, like, that was optional. You didn't have to have a membership. But you if couldn't, I, You couldn't go in, though, if you didn't have a membership or weren't sponsored by somebody. 
that's yeah. No. We'll have to check on that. I'm almost sure. I it was either pay five bucks every time you go or buy a. Eh, no, I think you had to have a membership and pay. I'm almost sure of it. We'll have to look on that and come back. But uh, granted, I am older than you, and I was locked in the closet, as I say, for 19 years in my marriage. I was not really locked in the closet, but yeah. I didn't go out. But I remember hearing people say, oh, no, you can't go have a drink anywhere unless it's at a restaurant with a license, a, you know, an alcohol license or whatever it is, and then or be a member of the bar. So you couldn't bar hop. I think that was the whole idea oh. was to deter people from bar hopping. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I never like, that was the only place I yeah. went. It was weird. Anyway. I used to let anyway. you get on the grand pianos. I was just going to say, so you've had a thing for piano players for a while. It sounds like I have. Yeah. And I've stood on top of it. I mean, I probably couldn't even do it now. <laughs> Not as agile as I was. You did do the hokey ago. pokey though. Next to I it. Did. You did stick your booty in. And my tongue. <laughs> yes, and your tongue. And you shook it all about. I saw it. Yep. There is video. There is, there is video. video. Maybe I'll post it on our social media. Yeah, you should, actually. We've been kind of black in there. I'll do it. Yeah, it's if been about three months since we've said we were going to do some of the stuff. This, we're gonna, when yes. this episode airs, I will show you shaking my booty all and tongue. about. And tongue. And my tongue. Not at the same time. We should probably talk about that on Instagram. Yes. And maybe that could be a TikTok post if we ever get that Let's really going. Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> Dang it. We got to do TikTok. We do. We got to do a lot of things. We're busy. Yeah. We're busy women. So that's the only, is that the only fun we had this week? Oh, I had fun, but I'm not going to talk about it. Oh, well, cool, cool. Cool, 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 cool. Anywho. <clears throat> yeah. Good. It was a good week. <laughs> that's all I'm saying about that. That is all I'm saying about that. Okay, moving right along. Moving right along. Today's episode is about such a fun topic, shame. <laughs> shame. So fun. It's so much fun. We love shame. Shame is such a fun emotion. Um, <laughs> and I am proud to say I have been shamed my whole entire life by lots of people. And so I am like the definitely dictionary definition of shame sometimes. Wait, you're proud to yeah. say that? Hell no, I'm not. Do you know how much counseling I've done just to get rid of that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah shame is a full contact emotion it, for sure. Ooh, I like that. Full contact. It, it does. It affects. It, it, it does not at all stay away from anything. It bleeds mm-hmm. into every part of your life. You're yeah. right. Full contact for sure. I like it. So let's talk about why we decided to do this other than we are so familiar with it. We're experts, but what kind of triggered this moment in you where we decided to do this this week? So a couple weeks ago, the Mormon church, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints got caught up in a I wouldn't call it a scandal, but they were, they ended up paying a $5 million fine um, because the, the Securities and Exchange Commission found that they were essentially hiding $32 billion in 13 different shell accounts. Right. They hadn't filed paperwork on it or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was that, that account grew so big that the church got concerned about their financial portfolio. And so the, it's just a small oversight, just a little 32 32 billion, cool, cool 32 bill. Yeah. Um, small country. So, yeah. (laughs) So yeah. And essentially like, I'm not going to go into my, the, you know, you can just Google it and everything you want to know will pop up. Right. And I'm not going to go into my feelings about 
the church on it, but it really did. I, I kind of took a deep dive into it and full disclosure, me and Lori have probably spent about eight hours talking about this, starting to record, deciding yeah. what to say. This episode, what. not like just this incident. Yeah, but, this, episode, yeah this episode, because there's part of me that kind of spiraled into a lot of feelings towards the church that I didn't, that have been kind of buried dormant for yeah. a while. Yeah. But, I, but this isn't what this is needs to be about. So if you're interested in reading about that, go ahead. But what it triggered in me was that all of the church's money came from their law of tithing, which is paying the church 10%. Right. The LDS church asked that you pay 10% on your gross Yeah. And income. it's not just a LDS thing. It's a, oh, yeah. it's biblical. Yes. But the Mormon church has some pretty strict rules surrounding it, like being able to go to the temple and being worthy of certain things yes. and that you just pay your tithing. And yes. you, even if it means you feel like you can't put food on the table, pay tithing first. Yes. And then show the, rest, the faith and the rest yeah. will come. Yeah. And that is something that I struggled with my whole life. And I, and for some reason, this story, like knowing that that $5 million that the church paid in fines was tithing money for maybe people who are really struggling financially. And yeah. it just, it, angered me a little bit but it also was kind of like I felt a little vindicated from like this childhood shame like my earliest my core identity is shame based and my earliest childhood memories of feeling like I was a bad person and and really feeling shame even though I didn't know the word shame was was when I was a child and it wasn't involved it was involving the church and it was the law of tithing because every year you go to tithing settlement and declare to your bishop if you're a full part or non-tithe payer. And I remember being the babysitting age and getting paid to watch neighborhood kids. And it was hard for me to pay tithing. Yeah, really and we're talking struggled. 10 or 11. We're not yeah. talking 16. No, oh, yeah. 10, we're talking child. Yeah, maybe 10 years old. Yeah. And there's this one family that I was kind of their regular babysitter. And every time I babysat for them, whether it was for two hours or six hours, they wrote me a check for $3.25. And I remember cashing those checks, having three twenty-five, and knowing that I needed to give 32 cents of that to tithing. That yeah. I and that was hard for me because that That's I a worked chunk. hard for that money yeah. and 32 cents of that felt like a lot of money. And there was a year where I didn't pay on all of my babysitting money. And I remember like being in my room right before I had to go to tithing settlement with the bishop and kind of scrounging through my stuff and just trying to find loose change because oh. I wanted to take some money to tithing settle me, settlement with me to try and to make, make up it right. for it. Yeah. Sure. And I couldn't, I didn't have enough. And oh. I remember sitting there and declaring to my bishop that I was only a part tithe payer that year. And he kind of did a double take. Like he was just so sure that he was going to be checking that little full tithe payer box. And I felt shame. I didn't know what it was. But when he kind of looked up at me and was like, oh, okay. And he moved down to part tithe payer. I was like, I, re I remember saying, remember how this feels, Andrea. You don't ever want to feel this way again. You have to pay your tithing. Like... I felt like a, a bad person and I had disappointed. My parents were there and they were disappointed and surprised. And my bishop did a double take and was surprised. And it was just the most shameful, shameful feeling. And okay. So let's talk quickly. You felt guilty in a way, but shame was you're bad, Andrea, right? Mm -hmm. That's the quickly talk about the difference because some people 
you know, if you like run a red light or if you, you know, I don't know, stole your kid's piggy bank, you feel guilty, but you, this became, I am a bad person and I am not worthy to be in this church because I didn't pay full tithing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so the difference, what you said there, shame and guilt. Yeah. Shame is the belief that I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad. Right. And everything that I remember from childhood, the way that I felt like my dad treated me and the way that I felt with not being good enough for the religion I was raised in, it was, I'm bad. Right. It was never, I'm a good person and I made a mistake. I'm a good member of the church, but I need to work on this one thing. It it was, I'm bad. I'm a bad person. And, and when I was eight years old, in the Mormon church, you get baptized at age eight and you know, the teaching is that you are, your sins are wiped away. And at age eight is when you're old enough to be accountable. And so from then on, you get a clean slate at age eight. And then everything beyond that is really practicing repentance and forgiveness. And and I remember being so excited to get baptized because at age seven, I was sure I was going to hell. Oh. And so I was so excited that at age eight, I got a fresh start. And it was like, okay, finally, now I'm not going to hell. On this day, it's my new new fresh start and it was you know I look at my kids because I have a daughter who was the age that I was when I had that tithing shame yeah and I have another daughter who's eight so I was younger than my youngest when I was sure I was going to hell and when I think about them and I didn't talk to my parents about it because I felt like my parents thought I was bad well yeah because it's the teachings of the church and they lived and paid their tithing. So why wouldn't you think, oh, they think I'm bad too because yeah. I didn't do what so I'm supposed I gotta to. So i got to figure this out on my own yeah. if I want to stay out of hell. That was my thought at age seven. Mm. I'm on my own. And as soon as I get that fresh start at age eight, I got to be vigilant in my repenting so that I can stay out of hell. Yeah. And, and I just have this funny memory of getting baptized, feeling that relief of a fresh start, and then I was really mean to my brother that's a couple years younger than me. And I think I tried to drag him out of his bed or push him off of a shelf or so he was playing in his room. And I remember thinking, I need to go apologize to him because that's a sin that I've made post fresh start. And you're and on the I'm track to hell, to hell again. <laughs> so I went in his room and I asked him to forgive me. I said, when I did that to you, I know that was wrong. And I, I want to ask your forgiveness. And He's like, yeah, I forgive you. And he's like, but you do that to me all the time. You've done that to me before. And I literally was like, well, that was before I got baptized. It didn't matter back then. And now that's washed away. But this one (laughs) that I'm eight now and I got baptized, like I need to say sorry for that. And it just felt impossible. Like from that point on, it was like, I can't repent for all this stuff. I'm sure that is really... I'm a bad person and I'm going to hell. And I think that had a lot to do with my departure from the Mormon church and then my later departure from all organized religion was like, I'm a bad person. I think if you're a very literal person, Mm -hmm. religion is hard because you beat yourself up so hard over things. I, I understand the exact same thing. Shame. Mine, mine came from kind of a shame by association. So my parents smoked and drank but would send us to church on Sundays. And I had older brothers that would, you know, I would go with them and my parents wouldn't go, but I smelled like smoke. Mm -hmm. And I had such shame 
wanting to be accepted. And I would, you know, sit there and listen to some of the teachings. And I'm like, yeah, I don't belong here. I'm a bad person. I don't belong here. Mm -hmm. And it was shame by association. And then around that same age as you're speaking of, you know, I was abused by a family member for a moment in time. And then I felt even more shame that I wasn't good enough to be there, that I deserved all these bad things and I would never be good enough. And, you know, and that shame for me continued in my life through lots of things, whether it was, you know, my mother telling me, don't dress that way. Don't do your hair that way. Don't, it was never a, Oh, I chose wrong. It was like, I'm bad. If I don't, my mom was a beautician. If, if our hair didn't look tip top shape, Mm-hmm. It was, I felt shame if I wanted, it, it was bad. Like if yeah. I really think about a lot of the things and then moving on to my husband, my first husband, if I shared too much of a story at a, you know, on a date with someone, it was, I would be shamed when I got home and I didn't feel guilty. I felt unworthy all the time. And so this, Andrew and I were talking about this episode and she said, do you feel prepared? And I said, oh, I could tell shame stories till the cows come home yeah. because it was a core belief of mine for the longest time that I'm just not good enough, mm-hmm. especially when it came to any any part of the church and its dealings. I just always felt like I didn't have parents who were involved. I didn't have, it wasn't taught in my home. I smell like smoke. So I'm just shamed by association. And it's a hard thing because, you know, if you're a child and starting out in that frame of mind, it's easier to feel shame about other things because you self-judge after that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, uh, Brene Brown is kind of the shame expert. Like mm-hmm. she's a shame researcher. So a lot of the thoughts that I have are from, I think, a TED Talk or something that she did. But the way that she describes shame is that it's an intensely painful feeling or experience that causes us to believe that we are unworthy of love belonging and connection and you know she talks in there about how we hear the word shame and oftentimes it's associated with trauma and she she says we need to get that narrative out of our head that we reserve shame for people who have experienced intense or unspeakable trauma because we all experience shame yeah and and most people whether they like you know when i was in tithing settlement, I didn't know what shame was, but I was experiencing shame. You knew that, in that feeling. Moment. And yeah. I think most people experience it daily. It's not something that's kind of lurking in our darkest corners that shows itself every once in a while. It's, it's in our body image issues. It's in money, work, parenting, parent, yep. family, religion, sex, addiction, um, or even just your thoughts, right? If you're thinking absolute thoughts about anything, I mean, let's face it, you're on the freeway and you want to ram into somebody, you feel bad that you thought that. I, it's a constant thing I think we all deal with. And, you yeah. know, there's a big difference between, oh, I should feel guilty that I'm doing that or I have such shame around it. And it affects a lot of people, whether it is affecting your sexual life or it's affecting your dealings with your spouse or it's affecting the way you deal with your children. Because, you know, in in our codependent episode, I talked about a lot of the times the way that it would be easy to give in to my kids or make life easier for them because of codependency. 
But also, in a way, I felt such shame that my parents weren't involved and my parents weren't around that I over-negotiate to make my kids feel good because I feel shame a lot. Yeah. Because I don't want to be that parent. I associate selfish parenting into my parents. And then it's just all this intertwined ball Mm -hmm. and it's easy to feel shame a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And as I, you know, as you're talking about parenting and feeling shame as parents, like I, I don't remember what was told to me in my childhood by my parents or by religious leaders or whatever that made me believe that I was a bad person, but right. at my core, it's the I way you interpreted it bad. Yep. So I'm very aware of that with my own children and you've watched me discipline my children and you've watched things come up that I just, you know, sometimes I let it go and sometimes I address it. But one thing I'm very, very careful about is like, there's, there's such a big difference between like recognizing the behavior that was bad and not that the child is bad Yes. because it's so quick. You know, if your kid comes to you and they're caught in a lie, it's easy to say you're a liar. Like, I know you're a liar because this is what happened. But when you tell your child that they're a liar, they, that becomes their identity. Like this is who I am. And I don't, they don't have the mental capacity or the developed brain enough to say like, no, that's not who I am. So they're being told this is who you are and you can't, they believe they can't change that. Yeah. But if you say you're a good person and you told a lie and that is an unacceptable behavior in this family, you're showing them that the behavior can change, but it's not inherently who they are. They're not a liar. They're a good person who told a lie and we're going to work on correcting And sadly, they will never see that. If you say you lied and you don't identify, sweetie, you're a good person. You just chose this thing. Even if you didn't acknowledge that you're a good person, that kid's going to think I'm a liar and I suck Mm because my mom hates lying. Like, and it is a slippery slope. Absolutely a slippery slope. But the more we, the more we focus on the behavior, like I, I am a good person who made a bad decision, the more we mitigate the shame outcome, which is things like addiction, anxiety, depression, isolation. Like when you, when you're focusing on that being me, that being who I am instead of this bad decision, that's where those results come from. Yeah. And I don't know. I feel like I've seen it. I mean, I, I've struggled with all of those things in my life and I don't, I've never associated like my addiction struggles with shame, but it is all of it. Anxiety. It it very much is. I watched it and I would hope that if my children ever listen to this, they're okay that I share this, but I watched my two boys, their father, very big on good grades, very big on high performance, all the things And I watched after the divorce, my oldest son, we were in the counselor's office because he was just struggling in class, you know, and, um, bless our counselor. He was in our neighborhood and his kids are very athletic like mine. And so we kind of had a common ground. And he said to my son, Hey, let me ask you a question. What position do you play in football? And he says, I'm a middle linebacker. And the counselor said to him, okay, so tell me this, when you miss a tackle on the football field, Do you give up and not work hard anymore? Because what my son was doing was like he would maybe fail a test or not not get an assignment turned in. And he would just 
melt and stop trying. And so what the counselor was saying was, what do you do? Do you stop on the football field? No. What do you do? I go after the next tackle, right? And it, it was a nice because it was a male figure in his life talking him through this, but also that it's okay to mess up and miss a tackle, dude. Mm -hmm. You got to keep going. And both of my sons, because they felt like they had to be high performing, get high grades, get high. The minute they started suffering, they're like, I suck. I'm a bad person. I suck. And I watched shame evolve very quickly in their lives. And I really didn't realize it at the time. But now as we're talking about it, that's exactly what they thought about themselves. Because their father placed such a high value on getting good grades that when their father left and they're taking this hiccup for a minute and figuring out their lives, they're like, well, I suck because I'm a bad student because I missed an assignment. And then they just flopped. And what a defining time in their lives because I think at times they still struggle with, well, if I don't do it perfect, I'm no good. It's either black or white, right? And that I think is the hard part about shame is it's black or white. You can't see this was just one little mistake. When you're in shame-based thinking, you are destitute. You are, I'm an awful person. I will never get out of this. I will never be able to climb out of the hole. And that's just not true. Yeah. It's just not true. Yeah. Um, I was listening to Brene Brown on this Ted talk that she did and she shared this experience about, and I don't know if it was just an example that she made up or if it was a real story that she heard, but it was, um, she was talking about students in a classroom and that the teacher was had graded assignments and was passing assignments back out to to the kids and she got to where there was one paper left and she held the paper up in the air and said okay there's one assignment left that I haven't passed out yet does anyone here have any idea who this belongs to just really dramatic getting everyone's attention and she's like could it be Cameron's paper cuz he's the only one that doesn't have his assignment oh, back that just as mortifying and he's the and and then she and everyone's like oh it's probably Cameron's and she's like how many times have you guys all heard me remind Cameron to write his name on his paper probably 20 times or is it 50 times how many days have you heard me say Cameron you know she just kept going and going and this poor little Cameron is just sitting there like shrinking oh his whole classroom's looking at him public shame yeah and then she says let me let me help you this time and write your name on the paper and she writes s-t-u-p-i-d on the top of his paper and gives it back to him and that you know that's this and just listening to that and she says even like watching the the audience that she's speaking to she's like i can see secondary shame happening to the people oh. listening like please stop leave him alone don't say anymore don't like yeah. we take on that shame for other people and i want to touch on secondary shame in a minute but but that school story reminded me of an experience that i had last year in my daughter's class when she was in fourth grade her teacher's birthday was near the end of the year and so i took in ice cream and a ton of toppings. I admit that I went overboard, but I had like you I no. know, shocking hostess know. with the mostest never. But I had like three tubs of ice cream and twenty toppings and strawberry syrup and chocolate and caramel and whipped cream and cherries. It was just a whole sprinkle explosion of goodness. And I let the kids all make their own ice cream sundae, 
And then they took it to their desks and got to watch a movie for like the last half hour of the day. And once everyone had their stuff, I started to clean up this disaster of toppings and stuff. And this little boy came over to me. And let me back up for a second. This was very, the very end of the school year. And for the whole school year, I'd heard about this boy. And I'm going to let's I'm going to call him Adam. We're okay. going to say his name is Adam. Okay. All three of my kids, he was in fourth grade, but my fifth grader, my fourth grader, and my second grader at the time all knew who Adam was. And he's, he's brought a plastic sword to school one time, and he ran over someone's skateboard with his bike, and he swears all the time. And, I mean, they described this kid, and I was like, what are they going to do? What are this administration yeah. going to do with this kid? He sounds terrifying and awful. And, and I'm like, hey, you guys just need to stay away from him. Like, I'd heard about him for a long time. Yeah. Anyway. So now we're at ice cream party. This little boy comes back to the table and he says, can I help you clean up? And I was like, oh, wow, that's really sweet. Yeah, you don't want to watch the movie? And he's like, no, I'll help you. And he starts putting lids on all the toppings and putting them in the totes. And, and I said, what's your name? And he said, Adam. And I was like, is this the kid? Aww. Is this the awful kid I've heard about? And he's getting wet paper towels and wiping up sticky caramel and... In fourth grade? Uh-huh. Picking Aww. tiny sprinkles and chunks of Oreo off the carpet. I mean, just he just helped me clean up the entire mess. And and we were just kind of talking quietly, and I just was super appreciative of him. And when we finished, he said, can I sit back here by you and eat my ice cream? And I'm like, sure, that's fine. And he sits by me, and, and I said, how, are you, how have you liked fourth grade? And, and he's like, it's been okay. And he goes, I have a behavior card. And I was like, what's a behavior card? And he's like, can I show it to you? And I was like, sure, if you if you want me to see it, I'm happy to look at it. And he's like, okay, just a second. And he runs up to the teacher. And I hear him say, can I show Miss White my behavior card? And she kind of looks over at me and I was like, I don't, you know, like, I don't know what's... So she's like, sure. So she hands it to him and he comes back and brings me this card. And he's like, this is my behavior card. And every time I do a rotation or every time I'm in the lunchroom, whoever sees me in that class or in rotation has to mark what my behavior was that day and I said why do you have a behavior card and he said because I'm bad and and it was just so his response was so quick and I said he identified with that yeah and that's the decision that he made and I said I said well I said look around this classroom I said all these other kids are eating their ice cream, watching a movie. I said, you are the only one that saw the mess that I had to clean up. And I said, I think you're pretty good. I think you're a pretty good kid. And he said, he's like, no, my house is right by the school. And sometimes I get angry and I run home. And that's against the rules to leave the school. And I've sworn at school before. He started listing all these things. And he's like, so I'm bad. In fourth grade, Mm -hmm. you're what, 10? Yeah. And I said, this is what I said. I think. I said, I think you're good, and you've just made a couple bad choices. But I think you're a pretty cool kid. And now you're working on correcting. And I said, and look at your paper today, and every behavior mark was good. I said, those marks are all good. So you're learning. You're learning what you need to work oh. on, that you're not bad. You're not a bad kid. And it was like he had this moment where it was like, so there's hope for me? Like, that's almost what I felt like I could see in his face was sure. like, wait, I'm good? Yeah. And I've just made some mistakes, you know? Yeah. And and those kids, our kids, everybody, like they're, none of us are immune to shame. And we well, all have those core memories and experiences, whether it's in the home, at church, in school, where it's like, 
I'm bad. Yeah. I'm mean. I'm this. And And if you have that tendency, I think it does carry with you because even, I mean, here we're talking about a label that people have given him, right? And he's a child. But as you were sharing that, I was like, how can I, how can I like draw the dotted line to our listeners to think, well, yeah, that's, you know, when we're kids, right? But I'm, I'm going to bring up some stuff from friends or, or even myself that are very parallel examples, but they're your own shaming. So, um, for instance, I have a girlfriend who decided to sleep with someone on the first date and he wasn't very sweet to her after, and she was doing it in hopes of moving the relationship forward. And he said to her, you know what, if you, if you can't just relax and go with the flow here, why don't you just leave Hmm. left for the night? She self-shamed. I want to say for at least four or five months about that one situation. I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have done. I'm so stupid. I'm never going to find a good, I'm never going to, you know, right. Self-shaming, self-shaming, self-shaming. Um, I have friends who constantly shame themselves because, they have not been able to land a high paying job or have had to move in with their parents when they've been divorced or um, guy friends who shame themselves because they've always been a bit overweight. And, you know, when guys get divorced and they all start working out and they all, you know, like, it's just, I'm fat and out of shape. I'm never going to be anything. Mm-hmm. And it's just a consistent drumbeat that once you start it's almost like, you know, when you pop a hip out of joint and it continually will pop out of joint because you'll get up. I say this because I'm dealing with it right now. <laughs> um, but the more, the more it happens, the more likely it is to happen. I think that's what shame is, is the more you start to get used to it, it becomes your complete narrative. Mm-hmm. Like instead of saying, I made, I made a bad choice and I slept with that guy, I was a bad choice. She had sold herself down the river of I'll never have anything good in my life. I'm horrible. Mm -hmm. And we do that a lot. And we have to stop the narrative and really examine where that's coming from because it's human. Like screwing up is, you know, the good old cliche. It's how we learn. It's what we do. And, And had I not learned the gifts of therapy and learning how to say, wait a minute, I'm not a bad person because my parents smoked and they never showed up at this. And they, you know, it's like, that's their story. I don't have to carry that shit. Mm -hmm. I'm not shamed by association. That's not me. Right. And that's a big thing too, is, is shame by association. Well, and generational shame too. Oh yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think if you're out there listening, thinking, wow, I resonate with a lot of this really look at what it is and where the, where the story came from. Is it a childhood story? Is it a story you've told yourself because maybe your life hasn't worked out the way you wanted or it all shame does. And Andrea and I say this all the time. Shame grows in darkness. Mm-hmm. All shame does is get bigger when you keep it in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. Shame hates light. Shame hates exposure. Yeah, it shame hates being hates seen. Words, yes, and like words being wrapped around what it really is, and digging yes. into that and yes. talking about it. Like that's where shame dies. But we think to make this go away, we need to isolate, and that's one of Brene's big things. Shame grows in isolation. Yeah, and yeah, I, you know, and I had an experience when I was in group therapy. This is kind of going back to what I said about secondary shame, but it was 
the first time that I'd brought some, a lot of shame that I felt from childhood into the light and I was doing experiential therapy and, um, role play. Yeah. So I was standing at the front of this group and I had to have somebody come and sit in a chair in front of me and represent my dad because I, I had a horrible relationship with my dad growing up and so much of, of my childhood pain and shame and struggle came from my relationship with my dad. And so I was working through some really heavy stuff that I'd never said out loud. And I had this guy sitting in this chair, we will call him Rick. And he wasn't allowed to speak. He just had to sit there and And take it and take it. Oh, have eye contact with me while I just let it out, let everything out that I needed to say. And I addressed him as dad. Yeah. And it went on for a while and there was some screaming and some crying and some swearing and some, I mean, I was letting out some stuff. I was in it. And when I finished and when you finish role play therapy, you have to like dismiss the person playing the role of whoever they're playing. And so at the end of that, he stood up and said, Andrea, I'm not your dad. I'm Rick. And, you know, to kind of like end scene almost yes. to like, yeah, not have any weird, like I don't know. Cut it's ties. A, yeah. Yeah. And then at the end of that, it was, I was exhausted and everyone in the group hugged me and whatever. And we kind of went on with the day, but I noticed for the rest of the day that Rick was staying away from me. Cause I'm, you're damn mean. I know. <laughs> I let some shit. There was some big shit in that. I've yet to experience session. that Andrea meanness, but but we'd become close over our the time we'd had in group therapy, and all of us would kind of stick together. But I noticed him like not sitting by us at meals, and that night, late that night, we had a movie night, and there were three or four of us in our group sitting in some chairs on one side of the room, and I saw him come in, and he sat on the other side of the room, and I was like what is going on here? And so partway through the movie, there was seats empty behind him. I went and sat behind him and I leaned forward and I was like, Hey, I don't want this to be weird, but like, are we okay? Did I? And I did not think for one did second I spit that in your it face had when anything. I was yelling at you. I didn't think it had anything to do with that. I was like, sure. I must've said something at a meal or I must've yeah. sworn. Well, yeah, because you've seen all these people go through role play. So yeah. you know, it's an on off thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and he turned around and he's like, honestly, He's like, when you were talking and I was playing your dad, he's like, I, all I wanted to do was stand up and wrap my arms around your neck and just hug you and not let go. And he's like, I couldn't do it. I, I, I mean, he couldn't, he had to sit there and I could, I could see him fighting back tears as I was talking, but they're not, you're not, if you're playing someone's parent or whatever, you're, you can't show emotion. You, You just have to be the body. Yeah. And he's like, that was so hard for me to, to be your dad. And, and it, as we talked, it was like, he was experienced, experiencing secondary shame for, for things that my dad made me believe about myself as a child. Like it was kind of like he stepped so deep into that role and saw me be so raw and vulnerable and really work through some painful stuff that he kind of took it on as like, I did this to her. You know, Aww. and we had to kind of talk about it and be like, you're not him. You're like you help Rick you, you like helped the guy. healing process. Like yeah. if anything, I'm doing better because you did that. And yeah, and we'd all done played parts for people. And he said, that's the hardest 
part I've ever played in experiential therapy. And, you know, and, but it's kind of one of those things about bringing it to the light, like finding the people that you know you can talk to about those hard things. And, yeah. And knowing that healing is possible. Like if you, if you learn to self-regulate and talk about this is, this is what I did. This is not who I am. It's going to be tough. And you're going to have those moments where you, it's probably a codependent thing where it's like, Oh, I feel it for you. I feel the burden and I feel or it's just flat out empathy, right? Like I can sit here with you and feel this with you and it feels like crap. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, uh, Andrea and I, before we got on this episode, I told her, I said, you know, with the abuse in my life, it was a very, I keep saying this, it was a short amount of time, but as my therapist would say, it still happened. Um, I, I told Andrea before we got on, I didn't tell a single soul about it until I was 21 and started dating my first husband. So 20, well, you know, 14 years or whatever, let's say it happened at seven, 14 years I lived with that in the darkness and then shared it with my then would become husband and then didn't share it again until my second husband. Mm-hmm. And then now it's my story and, yeah. and it's part of my story and you don't have to share it to everyone in the world. Like we do with your alcoholism and your fight and struggle with sobriety and then mine with this abuse or whatever. But I can't tell you how good it feels to say, that is not me. Mm-hmm. That's something that happened to me. Yeah. That is something that I didn't have a choice over and it's not me. Mm-hmm. And that's what shame loves is to just cling on to you and keep you in the dark and make you feel like it's all you. Right. And I think that's why you and I wanted to do this episode is, is to really say shame can be a very ugly monster and it gets created in the weirdest ways that you, some people they're like, where did that, where did that story begin? And I'm sure they can't even trace back where it did. We can, but some people can't. And you know, the beauty of it is, is you can really just learn that it's not you and to let it go, whether it's journaling through it or talking to a therapist about it or close friends about it. Um, it's become a lot easier for me to learn. Wait a minute. That's just a story. That is just a book that I thought was mine and it's not. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful gift to be able to put it down. Just like that little boy, Adam he got to put the book down and, and be like, wait a minute, you mean I can write a new story? I don't have to have this, I'm the bad kid for the rest of my life. Yeah. And what a gift that yeah. he got to learn it younger, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, as I think about the work that I've done to let go of the belief that this is who I am yeah. and change the narrative to this is a mistake I made that I've that I'm working on, or this is something that happened to me that doesn't define me. Social acceptance and connection becomes a crucial part of healing from shame because that's the only way is connecting with other people. And, and I think that would be my, my message in this episode was, would be that you have to find, you have to save people. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I got a message last night, from a girl and I don't know if I've talked about this, but it's just a girl that I'm helping that I've helped work through some pretty deep shame in a relationship that she ended. And 
I got a message from her last night. I haven't talked to her. The last time I talked to her on here was on March 5th. And then I got a message from her. Or February 5th. And I got a a message from her on March 4th. Yeah. So it was a month. And the message said, I feel like I haven't made any progress at all. If anything, I feel worse. And it kind of, I'm like, oh, it's, it's her. And we ended up getting into a conversation last night. But then when I went back and saw how she started that, like, I really appreciated that she knows I'm a person that a safe, person. that she can bring that to the light that she doesn't have to say, Hey, it's been a while. And I hate to admit this, but I'm still really struggling. It's like, she knows where there's a bright spot that she can go to, to, and I'm not saying I'm a bright spot, but you're I, so bright. but you know what I mean? It's but like you're a this, safe place. This you... is where I can pull my yes. mess out of the dark and kill some of that shame. Yeah. And it, it doesn't need an introduction and it doesn't need a, Oh, I'm sorry to bother you. Or I'm embarrassed that I'm still not over this. She yeah. can just say, I feel like I haven't made progress. And that's and we the can thing. Just talk it can take years to move through some of this. So don't put, I'm going to get better on a timeline, right? Like bless her heart. It's been a a month and she dared admit I'm I feel I worse feel off. Worse. Yeah. A, you're a safe place. B, you can probably say, let's talk through it. Let me point out the progress I'm seeing, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the nice thing about having people in your life to help you with it. Because when you sit there, you are your worst critic and she could self-shame herself into the depths of despair. Mm-hmm. But she reached out. She threw up you know, a, a white flag and was like, save me, come mm-hmm. here. I need your help. And that's the beauty of it is yeah. you don't even have to have all the answers for her, Andrea. You're just and validating and she's bringing it out of the dark. Yeah. And that's the thing. We yeah. don't have to be healed and shame free to be a safe place. Yeah. I don't have to have the answers, but the more we talk about our shame, the more we are all collectively bringing that to the light and yep. seeing how crucial those connections are, the safer we will all feel. Yeah. And the more we will kill shame. Yeah. And not let it be our narrative, not let it run our lives, not let it identify us. And yeah. It kind of brings this sense of normalcy when we really when we really do connect and see how how common it is yeah which is really the main reason we started this podcast I mean I say it all the time that's the reason we started this (laughs) but it is because Andrea and I carrying shame through our childhoods and then you know we even looked at our our failed relationships as shame like we must suck we suck at relationships we you know there's a lot of a lot I'm of, not going to be a two divorce. I'm right? Not be one no way. I'm not going to fail a second time. And, you know, we joke that, uh, you know, I joke, it's not, you know, trial and error. It's trial and learning and lessons. And, um, and Brene Brown says, what does she say? That what you just said reminded me. I'm not, oh man, what does she say? I'm here to get it right, not to be right. Ooh. I like and that. I love that because yeah. it's like it it shows like I'm learning. Yeah. I want to get it right. Yeah. I don't have to be right, but I want to get it right. Yeah. And just because you're whatever age you are, 30, 40, 50s, it doesn't mean you've got it down and you're perfect. And you're going to do something tomorrow where you want to beat yourself up for it. And it might be part of your story. And you're like, yep, see there, I don't deserve X or there I'm a failure there. I, and it's like, it's just a bullshit story. You know, it's that BS story that we talk about all the time. So um, shame will come up, I think, a lot in our episodes because we see something happens 
And then we say, yep, there's the evidence that is, that's the true. Mm-hmm. And it's a constant battle every day, all day for all of us. The biggest thing is, is that you recognize it, journal through it, talk to somebody, bring it into the light and don't let it define you. I mean, we're two perfect examples of what's possible. Two divorces, lots of drama, religion crisis, addiction, narcissism abuse. Like we, you know, codependency. We've got a lot of badges, but they don't define us and, and we want to help people. So shame is not who you are. It's not your defining moment. It's just something you've learned. Yeah. Yeah. So on that note, I think we'll wrap up. You good? Thanks for being here. Thanks, you guys. See you next week. Bye.